You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. I'm Byron Williams, and this is the small print where we try and unpack civil society into bite-sized chunks to make it easier for people to become more engaged citizens in the society that we're living in, both in the domestic front and in the international front. And today I've got with me Brent Mearsman, who's just written a book called Rattling the Cage. So Brent, if you don't mind introducing yourself the way you want to be introduced. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a writer and I've been around for a little while, so I think I have some benefits of hindsight and that's the book. And I've been busy rattling the cage. Fantastic. That's always a good place to start. So maybe you can just give people a bit of background as to what got you to the place into actually writing this book. Because it's a book about being a South Africa in South Africa is the way I definitely read it. But maybe you can just fill us in there. Just what, what made you, what motivated you to get this all out on paper, to take up the task of actually writing a book, which is <laughs> a lot of effort. Well, um, you know, I'm, I'm co-editor at Ground Up News, and uh, my daily job is to scrutinise copy that comes in from the reporters, um, and to look for the look for the truth and the accuracy, and look for our ideological blinkers. And so I thought, okay, um, what about my own? And uh, you know, we tell a story about our country. We all have, we all have a story that we we we've slowly developed with little bits of information. Often we echoing our social bubble that we live in. Um, not always do we get sufficient time to, to really dig down and to analyze uh, thoughtfully exactly what we believe and how, you know, how true is it. And that was the question I was left with, you know, and there's a lot of opinion about this, so many columns and so many things. And I thought, am I just going to add to the noise or can I maybe do something interesting? Maybe, you know, is there, some, is there space here? And so I went through the story that I've told myself of the country and the things that I've come to believe. Uh, of course, new evidence has emerged over a period of time, and um, I thought let's let's analyze the facts and let's put it all together and put it out there, and and tell the story of the transition from 1994 to the present day, and then look at the way South Africa looks today and why does it look the way it does? Because there are many competing narratives, and it's uh, it's a noisy democracy, and it's 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 a you know, we we've all got opinions on things, but I wanted to be I wanted to be sure for myself that I was at least uh, getting getting some things right, um, and then also by putting it out there in a book, I welcome criticism and I welcome other dialogues and people that can then, you know, challenge what I've put out there now and say to me, actually, hang on, have you thought of this? Maybe you haven't got that quite right. So that's the process. It's my contribution to that dialogue of trying to understand uh, South Africa and trying to understand why, after 27 years of democracy, we look the way we do. Yeah, so I suppose from my perspective, when I read your book, I got the sense, and I think it's a sense that many South Africans have, that South Africa is a story of near misses, near misses in terms of disasters, but also unfortunate near misses in terms of opportunities that we've really just let ourselves drop the ball on many, many times. Would you agree with that assessment? That's a sort of the general sense you get when, when looking back at the story of South Africa over the last 20, 30 years. Oh, yeah. No, there's been lots of, lots of missed opportunities and... Uh... Yes, lots of balls dropped, that's for sure. But also a lot of things could have gone a lot worse that haven't. And that's really, I suppose, the next question that I have for you, that also a lot of the, the content that you covered in that book was very much like you said, assessing where we are right now and how we got here, for better or for worse. I think that most South Africans are very, very well aware of where the problems are and what they are. But the real question that comes after that then is, what can we do about it? What's, what, are the, what are the low lying fruits, the low hanging fruits, and what are the big opportunities that we have to make sure we don't drop the ball on? What are the things that we can't afford to miss at this point in time? And that was almost where you kind of left the, the reader hanging. And maybe you didn't want to commit yourself to print any of that, but let's start there and then we can backtrack a bit into, into a bit of the detail that you did cover in your pages. If there was one or two things that you believe that we have to get right, that we cannot afford to drop the ball on, a ship that we cannot afford to miss this time around, what are those for you, particularly at this point in time in 2021? Well, well right now, I mean, I would, you know, corruption, getting rid of corruption and being serious about it and prosecuting the people and taking the Zonda Commission forward. The Zonda Commission is the TRC of the democracy. It is explaining to the citizenry 
through the, through through a commission process what happened in South Africa, and it is about people coming clean and people uh, again telling the truth to the commission, and about and us looking at how did we get ourselves into this situation? How did it happen? How did the checks and balances on our democracy fall so quickly and so easily? Um, that we could lose, you know, any, you know, figures of uh, around at least 250 billion, maybe 500 billion, but you know, a, a substantial, about half of of of, of a government's year annual budget disappeared in in, in a number of in a few years, um, and it's apparent, and you can see the damage that that has done everywhere in the society. Um, so so, coming out of that is Zondo taking the Zondo Commission forward, and hopefully serious recommendations which will affect the way Parliament operates um, and the way our Chapter 9 institutions operate and the various organs of state and how they interact. So that's, that's uh, you know, that's we dropped the ball with the TRC, we can't drop the ball with the Zonda Commission. And I would say the principal thing is that the only way we are going to guarantee um, uh, progress in South Africa is if we shore up uh, the independent institutions that we have, um, and that is, you know, things like the the public protector, the the, the independence of the courts, the um, the prosecuting authority, uh, the intelligence services, and law enforcement, um, and the courts, getting them more efficient. So there's all these various, and there, and there are more, and parliamentary oversight, etc. So those are the things that we, the organs, the independence and the constitution, the strength of those constitutional uh, bodies, that has to be, that's our prime focus. On the economic fr front, I'm convinced that the basic income grant is 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 actually not even an option anymore. Uh, is is the only option, you know. It's, it's not an option to, to not have the basic income grant. Um, that is going to have to happen. Uh, and I, th I think we are not going to be living in a country that any of us want to live in if we don't do something like that. Um, and it might not be ideal, and maybe it's not forever. Um, and it is a risk. It is an economic risk. There's no doubt about it. Um, but we're going to probably just have to, I think we should take that risk, because not doing it, um, I think the country is in serious jeopardy. Then you asked me about positive things in the first part of that question, and I'd say, look, we're still very far from being a failed state. Um, you know, there's, there's, and and look at the way we're sitting here, we're talking, we have our democratic uh, freedoms still. Um, we do have a president who appears to be in the corner of getting things right. You seem to freeze there for a second, so I don't know if you want to. You, we we lost you there was when you said we do have a president that seems to be getting things right, which I think could be quite a controversial statement for for several people why would you say that the president would be getting or is getting things right at this particular point in time because i think there's many many people across the political divide that might agree disagree with that statement yeah yes i know um and i'm i'm hoping that uh, i'm hoping that basically ramaphosa is by and large generally being underestimated um, and that things are moving. The fact is that the Zonda Commission is still standing and that it is there. Um, uh, somehow uh, he managed to get the entire ANC caucus to vote uh, to have the commission, to have the committee established to look into the public protector. Uh, that's no small thing and that hasn't happened before. Um, no motion brought by an opposition party initially has ever been supported uh, by, by the ANC. So that was an interesting, an interesting development. Um, and uh, but there are obviously I mean I can list another ten worrying signs at the same time, uh, but the the point is that he has he has made it through you know he is he is the president now against the one would have said against the odds uh, so they are I, those are the kind of positive signs that I do see of course I do see the other the other side as well but I'm I'm banking on that he's being underestimated so let's see. <laughs> That's a good place to start. But also just to pick up on then what you were saying about the Zondo Commission and its parallels with the TRC. I think that's an interesting point to unpack a little bit because I am sympathetic to the arguments that you made in your book and that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission went so far, but perhaps didn't go far enough. We had 
a fair amount of truth, not complete transparency, as you do point out, but there was truth, but there was probably less reconciliation than was required. And that is really sowed the seeds, like we say, every revolution sows the seeds of its own unraveling in the future. And what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission did leave us with is a lot of unresolved issues in South Africa. There was no punishment and no retribution, even if there was some reconciliation, for the crimes that were committed and even the crimes that weren't aired in the actual commission, there was a lot of stuff that is still buried. And there is a sense generally of unfinished business. And this of course sets up huge cancer in the, in the underbelly of society in that essentially when you're not punishing one cohort of leadership for dire, dire crimes, you are almost justifying or enabling or legitimizing the so-called lesser crimes of future leadership cohorts. And that's exactly what we're seeing. How can you call the corrupt who are stealing food from babies' mouths to account when you did not call to account people that perpetuated you know, literal crimes against humanity? How do you even compare the two? And how do you come back from that? Is something like a Zondo Commission not just going to kick that ball even further down the road or to further sort of lower the bar on what acceptable leadership is if the commission is really just a truth airing sort of ceremony without any actual, you know, repentance or comeuppance that is going to arise from it? And how, again, can the Zondo Commission legitimize any sort of punishment when it has not legitimized punishment for much greater crimes, or at least the South African society has essentially accepted forgiveness rather than retribution for much greater issues? How do you reconcile this? And is there any way forward without perhaps going back? Let me leave it with you there. Well, well, I think, as I said in the book, um, I, you know, I, 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 I say that I think that the, the people that did not take that very generous blanket plea bargain, which was you give us the truth and you get amnesty, and we, and this is no small sacrifice, but we are prepared to sacrifice uh, justice for truth, um, and people who didn't even honour that incredibly generous offer. Um, I, you know, believe should have been ruthlessly prosecuted. Um, and we now know, as more and more information has come out, uh, and only in recent years, although we suspected it for a long time, uh, those, there was political interference uh, during Mbeki's term of government, and there were people who remained in the prosecuting authority who obstructed any progress to be made. Um, and, th and there's one of the big balls that was completely dropped. So, um, it wasn't the fault of the TRC that our organs afterwards did not take that process forward. Now, the TRC had many failings, this is true, but we mustn't blame it. Uh, we can't blame the TRC for the failure of, of, of the organs of state and of law enforcement and of justice subsequently uh, to enforce uh, what the TRC had done. The TRC did its job, it said these people don't get amnesty. And then there were all these other people that we knew about, several, quite a few of a few hundred of them, who never even applied uh, for, for, for amnesty, and we knew what they were up to. It's been so long now that, um, in fact, I, I put this uh, question exactly to one of the very senior prosecutors uh, in the authority, and I said, um, I really think you need to run a parallel process here. Do you, do you not think that you should be prosecuting people uh, who didn't get amnesty or refused amnesty? Uh, for not full disclosure at the same time that you're going after the state capturers. And we should end this, this culture of, of, of impunity immediately and have them in parallel runs. His reply was, yes, but there are very few that we can get our hands on. Um, and they are so old at this stage, and it's a very, very difficult thing to do. So there is a capacity problem at the moment as well. But that's not an excuse. I mean, you know, I... I do believe that we should, and it appears there's some movement recently. There have been a few people that have been brought in, um, but but that is that is in an ideal world that is that is exactly what should be happening. And the 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 the, the success of the Zonda Commission is, as with all these commissions, is going to depend upon the extent to which its recommendations are implemented. And I'm afraid if we go by the history of commissions, that's the chances are are, are against it. But I don't think we can, that's not an attitude that's either healthy or good for us to adopt. 
we've got to say this is what needs to be done and we've got to push for it um, as citizenry, um, as writers, as, as people in, involved in, in civil society. We've got, to, we've got to push and say this is what we want to see happen and we've got to keep pushing that. Um, and, and we can't fold our arms and say, oh, it's all hopeless, you know, it's never going to happen. I want to see it happen, and uh, I think there is a possibility. Um, I'm worried about a few recent appointments, but uh, but but we'll we'll see how that pans out. The thing is that all these trials and tribulations, and all these things that we're going through, uh, you know, a, a healthy approach is to see how each one of them actually is building and is strengthening. I always said there was a, there was one upside to Zuma, and that was that it clarified a lot of powers. Um, and that another president can't do the kinds of things that he did uh, because we've actually got, you know, we've now got legal precedents and the law has been clarified on many accounts as to what a president can do and can't do and what is abuse and what is not abuse. So the kind of jurisprudence that grew out of the transgressions of the Zuma presidency, um, I think, will help us. And the same thing is going to happen, I think, with, uh, with Zonda. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. What we're really talking about here is trying to fix a very, very broken social contract. And a social contract requires at its core a degree of social trust in the contract itself and in the way society is structured. So talking about these commissions, of course, one side of things is trying to heal those deep, deep hurts and to come up with a new, basically, piece of paper to say this is the way we can move forward, drawing up that new contract. But it also requires funding, which you were touching on a bit earlier when you were talking about you know, the, the basic income grants and all the rest of it. Because when you're talking about a nation state and the democratic social contract, it's essentially, you know, a protection deal, right? You know, the, the people that can afford to pay taxes and in exchange, everyone else gets some security. So we give up some freedoms and in exchange, we get sort of some free stuff. But we've got a bit of a problem here in terms of funding that. Because not only do we have like a century plus a whole lot of that of, of complete exploitation of vast parts of our society that needs to be somehow sort of compensated for, but also we quite frankly just running out of money, never mind running out of other people's money, we're running out of our own money. So there's very, very little ways that we can actually think of to actually fund these sorts of things in a sustainable way that won't end up inadvertently creating even more problems for that social contract that is already only paper thin. And things like basic income grants are wonderful ideas, I mean, depending on who you are and who you speak to and what your personal opinions are. But essentially, where they've worked, there are places that have had things like sovereign wealth funds set up. The only real-life examples that have had sustainable rollout are places like Norway or like sort of small parts of Canada and Alaska that have wonderful natural resource endowments they're able to tap into that are essentially costless to the going concern that is the economy, that have been set up to fund these endowments. They're almost like luxury purchases. And we are a developing economy. Can we have sort of, you know, first world safety nets on a third world budget? And it's a very hard question to unpack because where we are in a developing nation are the places that require more social security and more welfare entitlements. But at the same time, you've got far less money to fund it. And I have definitely raised a few of these issues based on my work in the sort of economics and future space on how the, these things are only made more difficult these days with the way technology has, you know, enabled capital outflows. So, you know, people that don't want to fund a social contract can leave quite easily, both physically and physically speaking. Do you have any tangible sort of insights? as to how we can fund these sorts of things in a sustainable way. Because on the one hand, they're essential if we want people to buy into the social contract. On the other hand, if they're financially unsustainable, then are we just setting another generation up for, for failure? As we all know, sort of happiness is that difference between reality and expectation. And isn't it very, very dangerous to be setting expectations that we're simply not going to be able to fulfill in 5, 10, 15 years time? Or do you have a different view? Look, I, I, I take on board uh, what you're saying, and um, you know the, the 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 situation that I'm the situation that I'm in is that I'm I've been struggling to try and get out uh, answers from the the economists that are the proponents of the basic income grant, and uh, and trying to get from them proper costings and proper you know proper data and uh, and that has been quite difficult. That I, as a government, I'm not quite sure how. 
how confident I would feel, uh, you know, on, on, on the data that is coming out uh, in order to roll out something like that. I do think that there is room to explore um, the there is certainly room to explore uh, new monetary policy, which is which has been interesting. And I did have an interview with the governor of the Reserve Bank, um, and he was under he was saying that inflation doesn't seem to have been the kind of problem that one would have anticipated. So that's a whole other debate. And I know that there's certain economists around the world that are getting incredibly worried now about inflation. And, you know, once it starts, it can it can move very, very quickly up. It can tick up very quickly. Slowly then and it's incredib- go bankrupt. Yeah. <laughs> and it's incredibly dangerous, especially when it comes to something like social grants. So that, you know, just the one percent of inflation, you know, you, you've got to find an extra whatever, you know, 20 billion uh, just for that one percent. Just to, every year, just to keep. So the Achilles' heel of, of of the social grant system is is inflation. So inflation has to be absolutely kept down. Um, no question about that. We are about to put 500 billion into the into the economy or more, you know, through COVID, um, and we haven't seen an uptick in inflation. That was one of the questions that I. Everyone's asked doing it, right? Yeah. Right, <laughs> right. They, they are, but everyone, but every economy has a has a different ability to absorb uh, new money. And we need to establish what is the rate at which South Africa can absorb new money if we if we went that route. But I do think it's an interesting route, and it is one that we need to we need to explore. Um, at the same time, you know, there's you are also able to not just do money into the system in the conventional way. You know, they say print money, but basically create more money, um, and then giving it through the normal channels. You, there are possibilities of actually giving it directly into the departments itself. So government is actually giving itself money, and and it's not getting it through 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 the through basically the liquidity of the country. So there's a there, there are things that can there, there are other mechanisms here which I think we need to explore as well. Um, like what Greece tried to do. Se- <laughs> well, well, yes, and 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 Try. I also want to say to South Africans, if you think you're suffering now, wait till the economy goes the way of Greece go, Greece went, um, then you then you will see the problem. Fine, but when it comes to the to the basic income grant, we are doing it anyway. If you look at where we started with how many social grants there were, and if you look at where the social grants are now. And if you aren't creating any unemployment and you have no other answer, you're going to have people starving to death and dying on your streets and malnourished. And, you know, what kind of, you know, what are you going to land up with? So it's almost like you don't really have a choice. And I feel that that um, and this would be hugely unpopular, but basically it's a redistribution within the redistribution of the social grant as it stands where you would basically have only the basic income grant and you would not have all the other social grants. That money would be redeployed into the basic income grant. And you'd probably well, sit that's what these something. things are supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, people In theory, think that a that universal basic income should reduce that, that dead weight loss, not an add additional. It. Yeah. So mm-hmm. and maybe set it at the poverty level, at the minimum, the 585 rand figure that, that that's bandied around, you know. But I mean, so that you know, these are things that I think have to be seriously looked at because uh, the, the 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 failure of us being able to have a social grant in lieu of not able to create employment for people has led to the crisis in our tertiary education system. That is why that's the first consequence. You know, the universities are collapsing because there is no support after you turn 18. I mean, it is one of the underlying economic currents that has brought about the fees must fall movement. That, you know, and 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 the consequences I think are going to be severe for tertiary education, and we're going to watch one thing go after the other. Um, so, so that's why I think that I'm not quite sure what the options here are. The ideal option would be that you create what is called the social wage, and that by through an efficient delivering government, you're giving everybody the benefit of uh, of of, of uh, housing and free education and low, uh, free uh, water, free electricity, free all these things for indigent households, and that you can roll that out of the country. But that isn't quite working because we don't seem to have that delivery mechanism at the moment. Um, so then maybe the option is money straight into the, into, into the pockets of every individual. 
But these are all things that I think need to be ex explored. And I, you know, I'm not, and that's, you know, the, the book, there was one review that criticized the book for not proposing solutions, but I've never ever saw that as my role. Uh, my role, and in fact, one of the early reader reports when I put the, from the publisher was, you know, you are, give us a good analysis. That is your job. Analyze the situations. You can make a few proposals, but it's not your job to solve the problems of the country. That's not the book you're writing. So, in fact, the number of areas that I wrote about solutions I took out of the book. And, in fact, I didn't write about the basic income grant uh, in Rattling the Cage. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if someone's got to sort of map the territory before you can figure out what's going to what's what is going to be the best solution. That's obviously or very often what real problems are when you try and solve these messy problems, as, as we all know, as citizens of planet Earth in the year 2021, after living through the, the governmental monumental mess that has been sort of COVID pandemic management. If we don't understand what we're doing, all too often interventions can end up causing more harm than good, which is why you have to have a very, very good understanding about what the real core problems are. So I do want to come back to that social sort of contract idea, just ask a couple more questions there, and then we can go into, as you were picking up on, and how pivotal the universities are in the current situation. But in terms of that whole sort of social contract, and I did allude to it, it's not fair, you're not an economist, to say find the money for a, a basic income grant, but I was going to ask you anyway, because we're all entitled to an opinion, that's the point of the show. But there is sort of a, a subtext, and you did allude to it in your book, but it's not a comfortable conversation, but it comes back to the failings of the TRC and the dawn of democracy and the sort of failed Rainbow Nation advertisement. And to my point that there really was no retribution. There was no sort of punishment for the crime that took place in South Africa. And these sort of ideas have been sort of popping up a lot more recently. Things like, should we have had back in 93, 94, a reparations tax like what Germany did at the end of the Second World War? Should there have been some sort of punishment for the general population? Or if not punishments, at least a sort of olive branch to extend across the divide between the beneficiaries and the people that had been exploited due to South Africa's very, very messy past. And that's, that would have made sense back then. I think I probably would have been a supporter of that, you know, because it would have been a, a sort of a point in time to say, this, is, this needs to be paid for, there's a debt to be paid, but we don't want to push that debt onto my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. You know, there's got to be some sort of payback so we can move forward. But because there has been no payback, all these other sorts of things like demands for free tertiary education become legitimized because people have been left so far behind. And it doesn't seem necessarily so practical to do it now because most of the greatest sinners have either immigrated or passed on or too elderly to actually sort of feel any sort of punishment from that sort of pain at this point in time. But these ideas have been floated around again right now. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, do you think it is something that we can look at sort of retrospectively or has that ship sailed? It's just no longer a valid idea because now the wrong people are going to be punished and the wrong people are going to be rewarded and we, we're too far down that road. So that's the one part of the question. Before you answer, I think there's some other ideas that have been floated around that could be a sort of compromise on that to look at the, the current beneficiaries of the current mess that is South Africa, but also as potential ways to fund nice things like basic income grants, nice things that we simply can't afford and we can't even keep the lights on, you know, for more than sort of 20 hours a day, you know, on a, on a good day. And the one idea that I did think was quite interesting is a sort of a compromise way that also speaks to the social contract was what Musi Maimani was proposing in terms of a, of a basic income grant that is funded by corporate South Africa as an alternative way to add up your, your points on your BBEE scorecard. I think that's an interesting idea, even if it's not the correct idea, it speaks to the right sort of incentives and the right sort of levers, and it gets people to essentially pay for their unearned privilege, but it also is a way to avoid some of the other sort of elephants in the South African room being the, the sort of the, the patterns of deep-seated corruption that have involved as soon as you start to get the state organized in managing any giant pot of money. So can I get your comment on those two things? Reparations? Too late? Too early? Is it even, is, should we even be talking about it? Is it too dangerous of an idea? And then what about those other options of finding ways to get corporate South Africa to fund some of some of these things that, that are desired and required for our nation right now? Well, I, I rather like dangerous ideas. Um, 
Uh, well, I, but as I say, and I, I, I actually do, I say in the book that, and, and I was an advocate of it at the time uh, in 1994. I did think that there should be a, a retribution uh, a tax. I, I, I did think that that was a restoration tax. I thought that was absolutely essential, but I think that ship has sailed. Um, I also thought that we should have introduced a 100% inheritance tax. Um, or at least 80%. An incredibly high inheritance tax would have done, would have been a mechanism to achieve an enormous amount of redistribution. Basically, compensation, you know, expropriation without compensation, but only when you die and when you don't need it anymore. Um, and that, but the, unfortunately, that's no longer viable. Um, in terms of corporates, I mean, I think that, the, the, that we have we have a real problem there. Um, First of all, we have a, a corporate investment strike in South Africa. So there are billions and billions and billions that is uh, uh, that is sit, that corporates are sitting on and they are not deploying and they're not investing in the economy. And you've got to ask yourself why. Um, and I'm afraid it's the fault of it's the fault of government and policy. Um, and that has to be has to bring them on. So. Um, uh, you see, these are the these are the this is what happens to you when you reach fifty. You start becoming a little bit more conservative as well, um, and I I think that we're going to have to be extremely uh, uh, practical about this and pragmatic. Um, I, we can't we, we we have to actually bring we can't drive the corporate sector away. We have to actually bring it in. We've got to get the engine of capitalism going again. Uh, that's I, I I don't actually see any alternative. Um, the idea of using redistribution to 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 fund growth um, is a great idea, but it's still only an idea. It's still unproven, um, and we we are caught in a situation where we also cannot. It's austerity by stealth at the moment. I mean, that's without a doubt. That's that, you know that is what's happening, and we 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 cannot go into this the kind of austerity that we went into after the apartheid government bankrupted the country. Um, and we sat with it all the way up until 2008. We're still sitting with it, but we got our macroeconomics and we revived our economy. We got it almost back in shape, except for unemployment, of course. Um, that was that by 2008. Uh, we can't give. We can't tell people we're going to have austerity now for another 15 years to fix the the, the mismanagement and the corruption. Uh, it, it's 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 just not going to wash. You're going to you're going to land up with a uh, you're going to land up with a probably with a failed state eventually um, from a political point of view. Um, so so that's so those are the my I think have I covered the replies? Yeah, just if there are any other dangerous ideas you want to throw in there as to how to how to rewrite that social contract on a more fair basis, because I don't think if we if we don't get that right as South Africa, if the wrong people are winning or the same people are winning and the same people are losing, it doesn't actually matter how big your social grant is. We're not going to fix anything. I think that is something that's worth sort of pausing and thinking about is how South Africa does have such a large social welfare state already and yet all we've really seen is an increase in inequality and unemployment over the same time so these ideas that sometimes sound you know like they're going to point in one direction don't necessarily take us in the direction we really want to be going which is to be getting more people economically active which really brings us back to the whole tertiary education thing so tertiary education education at large is a money multiplier if you get that right your economy grows unlike social grants which is actually like you know taking on debt or you know borrowing from the future or redistributing wealth for essentially for consumption purposes and of course we have to worry about today people have to eat as you say and you know there, there are problems that we have to require we're not starting from a blank slate we're starting from a very very messy state but there are definitely places we can be investing cash when you're talking about sort of not going down the austerity route that are going to deliver a positive multiplier rather than a negative multiplier. And we have spoken on the show about a lot of those negative multipliers and the sort of the state owned stable. We don't have to go into that too much now. Let's come back to that question of education, because in theory and in practice across most parts of the world, Increasing investment in education translates into increase in economic growth. That's what we need. It doesn't matter how many how many pieces we cut our pie into unless it's growing. We, we're really just sort of shuffling chairs on the Titanic, so to speak. But we have a catch here. In South Africa, when it comes to other sort of emerging markets, we spend more on education, particularly our small children, for much less than global standard results. And unless we fix that, the money is almost the, the second problem. You know, if we're funding, funding systems that are failing children, 
that's, that's already solving the wrong problem. So there's sort of two parts to the question I want to unpack for you there, because in your book you spoke a bit about tertiary education. You didn't really go into the sort of the primary education and the basic education question, but I think that that's really fundamental, because especially in the South African context, again, inequality is the problem. Already, it's only the elite elite minority that even gets a university exemption pass. We're still sort of preaching to the top of the choir, even if we are fully funding tertiary education, there's still a much bigger mountain of people that are getting left even further behind going forward. So the the parts to my question are firstly, what's gone wrong with basic education? And secondly, then, what's gone wrong with tertiary education? I think they are sort of two different questions. The one's a more funding question, and the other one is a more of a systematic social governance question. Maybe maybe you disagree with me there, but over to you. Well, I mean, I do say in the book, look, mostly I do write about the fees must fall movement. That's one chapter. And then I write quite a lot about um the, the other the other issues around around the culture of universities and the, and, and the culture of of, of of new generations and 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 freedom of speech and freedom of art and you know a touch on all those those areas um, but I but as I say in the book that you know there's no doubt in my mind that the only way to to educate the country and to move progressively forward will be a matter of us funding more early childhood development and getting the schools in shape. There's, there's, that, that, that's fundamental. Um, I think that a lot of our universities are, my question when it comes to the free education is what kind of education do you get when it's free? Um, and if, our, yeah. if you can look at the difference in our schools between no fee schools with a few extraordinary exceptions, which are wonderful, uh, actually many exceptions, but overall, and if our schools, the paid schools with the big fees are the ones with the resources and producing the quality, uh, why would that be any different uh, within the tertiary education sector? Um, so I'm, 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 ex- I'm, I'm quite worried that uh, at the moment our universities are in danger of bankrupting themselves uh, for large intakes of students. Um, many of which are not going to complete their degrees anyway. So in a sense that that money is is wasted, you could say. Um, I don't think educating anybody is a waste of money, but it, it's not producing the degree at the end of the day. Um, and the person isn't coming out fully qualified. So They're not getting their return on investment as an individual or their return on time, because that's the other thing. It's not free, even if it's you're not paying for it. You're still investing four years of your life into this program, assuming everything goes right. Yes, so I think that question is often often sort of dropped off. There is a cost to the students, even, even if they're not literally paying for it. Well, well, of course, they're being cheated um, mm. in, in some cases because, uh, you know, they're coming out of university with a degree for which everybody has... Uh, family has made enormous sacrifices um, and it, it's heartbreaking and they've gone through this process and only and to get a piece of paper and to be told that you've now got a degree and you are qualified and then to go into the workplace and find out that you actually aren't qualified and that you don't you don't have the skills that are necessary and that That's the employer and that the employer then wants uh, you, you to have uh, uh, experience and you can't get that experience so it's, it's uh, and that so people are cheated uh, literally being cheated it's like you know going to a, going to some you know to some college that says it's going to train you in something and paying a whole lot of fees and, and coming out with a with an inferior with an inferior education so you know that you know that is that, that is a worry of mine around tertiary education at the moment um, and I don't see if you're going to take what is reprioritizing the education budget what exactly does that mean um, and it hasn't been explained to us it's been saying that we're going to reprioritize quickly so that we can put in these billions of rands um, into getting rid of historical debt and into funding the NISFAS shortfall. Um, but where, we ta- where are we taking that money away from? And where will universities be making cuts? Will they be making staff cuts? Uh, will they be uh, uh, decreasing the payment on, on their staff? And will we be lo- losing the best, uh, the best professors? Or are we already lost the best professors to being demoralized? 
Uh, are we going to take the money away from research and development and expensive projects, uh, which are absolutely necessary? So all the other things around the university, because our universities are now doing things that it's not their primary function. Their primary function is to educate people. It is not to look after all their corporeal needs. But of course, if you're a liberal institution, you're doing, and, and I totally understand, it. you can't leave your students I mean, I've, I've got friends, lecturer friends, who for years, even before the fees must fall erupted, uh, would, would have to collect all the staff on it one day a week would bring food from home and bring cans of food and bring all kinds of things to the university because they were struggling with, their, with the students who were underfed and couldn't concentrate in class because they were hungry. Now, you know, but that's not a university's role. And if it's going to be spending money on that, as opposed to spending it on education facilities, well, that's, that's extremely worrying. Um, but yes, I, I, what, what has gone wrong? I mean, one of the things that has gone wrong, uh, besides us having incompetent ministers uh, in education for a very long time, um, and I, I don't mind saying that, uh, we, we've also had a union that has been, and I have sympathy for the teachers as well, uh, and I know why there's, there's a kind of a, a, a militancy and a, and, a, and a demoralization that has taken place there, which has made, made them not maybe the most responsive teachers or the most dedicated and the union as well. I mean, you know, teachers have really been messed around in this country and, and then to be singled out in the budget as the one group that is you know, going to get a 0.8% increase uh, is, is, is extremely insulting. Um, and, uh, but, but certainly the, the union, uh, SATU, has, has been a huge obstacle to education in, this, in, in, in South Africa. I'm sorry to say they, they have been. Um, and they've been protecting uh, lack of performance and principals who don't perform. And uh, I think that's a good point. But I think that when it comes to looking at solutions going forward, there's quite a big debate going on across other parts of the world at the moment, because a lot of these issues are not only applicable to South Africa, but they are magnified here because we do have a, like a particularly weak state if you want to talk about it that way. And we do have a, a culture of, you know, manage, managerial perhaps incompetence at best. And, and there's a culture of corruption too at various levels of our central planning. And there's, there's an argument to be made that a lot of those problems can be solved by funding students instead of funding institutions as at least a stopgap measure, a bit of a compromise between the left and the right sort of spectrum of society in that at least the cash gets to go to the right person, not in terms of a check, but more of the, the voucher sort of system that's being sort of bandied about at the moment, where that parent and that child can choose however to spend that voucher on any different school. And this perhaps didn't make so much sense when you had a lack of options of schools in particular particular rural areas, for example. But I was speaking to an NGO earlier today and she was saying that she's switching her funding. She funds a lot of students that go to private schools in South Africa, but she's going to stop funding those sort of like 10,000 rand a month school fees to go to physical school and is rather going to, for a tenth of that price, sort of like one and a half thousand rand a month, send them to a private elite online school, which suddenly makes it a whole lot more affordable to educate a whole lot more people. Because when you start looking at what South Africa is spending per head, per child at school, those numbers are already comparable. If we redeployed that money into the hands of parents and allowed them to make their own choices for their children, could that work? And then could that sort of model be rolled up to tertiary education too? And this, of course, is where we start getting into more murky waters because then we're starting to draw a line between children that qualify for tertiary education and those that don't. And we're starting to put a number on that of how much society is willing to support its elite cohort compared to what everyone else gets. And when you start running those numbers, the number we spend per capita on a student that is, you know, academically accepted into an institution compared to those that don't finish school, suddenly you're left with a whole different inequality problem there. And that opens back up the conversation about basic income grants, because at least then the, the left behind are getting something out of that sort of system. What are your thoughts on funding students rather than funding schools, again, at the sort of the school level and at the university level, because that's not something that many people are talking about, but listening to the problems you are talking about in terms of free tertiary institutions versus the ones we pay more money for, it sounds like it's a lot of the same sort of problems, especially when you start layering in the, the additional services that universities are now having to provide. Could that be a way to avoid some of this or have you even thought about that at all? 
I've I've heard it um, I've heard it proposed and I've heard the ideas go around, but I but I really do not know enough about the the, the voucher proposals to be able to to really express an opinion on it. I, uh, one thing that I could say though is that I have a hunch, a very strong hunch that far too many people are going to university who should not be there, um, and that's um, a sure I'm sure a very unpopular uh, view, but. Uh, I mean, I, you know, back in the day, <laughs> this is the things we say now, but, you know, for my, I went to a very ordinary uh, public school um, and uh, one that was in some, to some measure looked down upon by, by the, by the Southern suburbs of Cape Town and by the, by the good schools. Uh, so, but I got a very solid, very good education, actually. Um, within the context of apartheid, politics aside, um, and I, I, I came out educated from matric, um, and uh, that would equip me and allow me, whether I went to university or not, to further myself in all kinds of ways. And I'm not quite sure that our matrics um, are coming out of school uh, with an education, especially if they just scraped through on a pass or something. Um, and on, I'm not sure to what extent that they are, are in a position to improve their lives and go into different kind of areas. Now, going back to my class, I think we were, we were six classes of 30 students each, about 180 in my matric year. I, I think only about 10% of us went to university, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe slightly more. Um, and these days, um, if I look at the total numbers, it seems to be much higher. Um, I'm, I'm not 100% sure of that figure, but that's something which we would need to look at. And we know that people are arriving at, at university underprepared, um, that we were underprepared, we felt we were, but in, in no sense were we as underprepared as many of the metrics, even with matric exemption that they're currently getting um, at, 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 at basic education um, are. So, so, I, so that's, you know, so oh, should we not be also looking, putting less emphasis on the universities, uh, maybe have less universities and have far more colleges and far more really, because the TVETs are being left behind, left behind and maybe they are more essential to the kind of match we can make between our economy and our labor force. Don't the TVET schools cost more per head because they're teaching technical things rather than purely academic things, which don't scale as nicely. You can scale online education to even a sort of a, a Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge level quite easily, you know, like what they're through, through massive open online classes to get that information out. Whereas the, the colleges, the practical colleges require more personal tuition. They require often more equipment. And that's one of the lesser sort of explored reasons why perhaps those things are being underfunded. And then of course, you've got like the, the whole sort of AFRI forum funded colleges that are popping up, but are once again, probably not solving the deeper issues because they're only catering to a very small segment of South African society. But when you start unpacking this, it's a very complicated problem to solve. But I think that listening to you, in my, my opinion, does tend to lie towards really get basic education right for the majority before we can have luxuries, things like, you know, free tertiary education. Again, a, a privilege, you know, for, for a very small minority in, in reality of, of, of young South Africans. I mean, I think according to the statistics, it's, it's, it's down to a case of like less than one in two kids that start in grade one even get to matric, which is which is shocking. I mean, that's that's definitely the bigger problem to solve because that's your left behind. Those are the people that are going to require basic income grants that have not been given any tools to become productive, economically active members of society, which is a complete failing. And for me then, you know, when you start talking about things like basic income grants, a basic income grant is almost like a plaster on a on a failed society, like on, on the gunshot wound that is a failed society, because it's addressing the top level issues, the immediate issues, but it's not addressing the deeper layers of change that are required if you want to actually fix that going forward. But that doesn't solve our problem around the, the current fees must fall movement, which is not going away. Our previous president promised free education. Again, that difference between expectations and reality is failing our youths, many of whom have come through huge, overcome huge obstacles even to just get that place in that university, even if, as you're saying, perhaps we are offering too many places and underpreparing people for it, there's still a huge amount of challenge to get to that point, a huge amount of expectations that have been failed. 
what can we do with this cohort, with Generation Z? These are our born free, this is our born free generation that is fighting for fees must fall right now. What do we do with them? What can we promise them legitimately? Or do you have any ideas what, what can be done there? I know it's completely unfair to ask you to solve the world's problems, but you do have a good understanding about what's going wrong at tertiary education level and what the, what the feelings are underneath that whole fees must fall movement. What, what would you do if you were put in charge of our universities and, and told to solve this problem? Well, I'd do a lot of art classes and yoga, probably. Um, I, look, I, I, I just want to say yes, and I make the point in the book as well that most of the money from that social grant um, goes, you know, goes straight back uh, to a very small corporate sector, actually, you know, various studies have, have, have shown. But you, you, at sometimes you, you are going to need the plaster because your alternative is people bleed to death. So yes, it is only a plaster, but you can't, the, the alternative is even worse. So, you know, that's just one thing to say about that. Um, can't argue with that. In term, and, and yes, and again, basic education, that is, that is early childhood development. You have to start there, you know. And the point was, at a session that I chaired yesterday, the point was made that we, the government spends 115 billion rand on tertiary education and 1 billion rand on early childhood development. That's shocking. That's exactly. totally shocking. Exactly. Um, so that, you know, so yes, so that, yes, in terms of what do we do? Of course, there's no such thing as the born free generation. I know what you mean, but nobody's yeah. born free, and certainly not in this country. Um, but yes, we do refer, with shorthand, we refer to it born as free, that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but that, uh, that generation, you know, I, I wrote an article, and it's not in the book, uh, some years ago, saying we're going to have to teach people how to live. Uh, because if we're not able to unemploy them and they, uh, and, and they are going to be hard to employ, you know, I do talk about in the book how we've made this decision that we are not going to do the, the race to the bottom in terms of labor. Um, we are not going to, we're not going to go for sweatshops and where you can employ lots and lots of low skilled people at, and, at a globally competitive rate. That is a, a political and a moral decision that the country has made. The, the other side of that coin, unfortunately, and without the education and without the kind of industries that uh, can absorb that labor without enough agricultural, agriculture might be one route, but without, without that, you, you, you do have a problem in that you've got people who are essentially rendered unemployed. Um, at a competitive wage within the kind of economy that we work with within South Africa and, and in the global economy. So that, you know, that is a huge issue. And then my answer to that really is, is you have to invest in, in social, you're going you're gonna, to you have a, you know, I, I still think the basic income grants so that people are not starving to death and you're going to have to have um, by the things that make life good. People are going to have to be taught and helped in terms of how to live. And you're going to need that thing, which, you know, the, the Cape Flats have been screaming about it for years, saying we do, we do need policing, sure, and thanks for the army coming in. But what we need more than anything else is we need facilities. We need some sport facilities. We need recreational facilities. We need, we need efficient policing. We need social workers. We need community organizations. Yes, we need art classes and yoga. Um, you need art. Things what that will appeal to people, music groups, sports groups, you know, people with then, you know, are, are able to, and also, you know, uh, the, the point is that if you have a good basic education, as I mean, look, my father, because of the, the Second World War and, and, and growing up in Belgium and his school being bombed and the schools closed, in fact, only had a, a standard eight. Um, and he came to this country and he made a life for himself and he developed himself because he, he then, he had a good, he had just enough education to be able to educate himself. Um, and he could read and he read lots and lots of books and he instilled an enormous love of, for, for knowledge in myself. So it is quite possible. Um, it is quite possible that if you've got a, if you've got a, if you've got a basic education and you're literate, um, you, you can improve your life in all kinds of ways that are not necessarily um, outcomes or actually the schooling system should be called incomes-based uh, education. Um, you know, you, you, you can improve your life by you can learn a new language. You, you can do all kinds of things that, 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 makes, that make life uh, uh, bearable and you can appreciate things as well in a way. 
So there's, there, there is a role to be played. In terms of the online education, and, and it is an exciting idea that we can use technology. Um, uh, and, and, you know, people are talking about expanding UNISA, basically, and so that you would have a number of, maybe you'd have a whole number of, 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 of uh, so less, less universities, a number of Ivy League colleges that actually specialize in the producing the kind of skills and brains that, are, that every country needs if it's going to compete globally, uh, you know. Uh, and are specialized in that. And then you really are looking at the, you know, the, the, the cream of the crop. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, educating online as well. Uh, why? But we, uh, it's an exciting idea. And, and let's see how it goes. And maybe it becomes a necessity should, purely because COVID isn't going anywhere. Um, so that, that is something which we, we, we would look at. Um, but always with, you know, we have to be careful that many ed education decisions in the past in this country, such as uh, outcomes-based education, um, you, you know, were done with the best of intentions. Um, we're not going to take this uh, Bunta education anymore, and we are going to give our kids the very, very best, and we're going to search the world for the best system, and we are then going to implement it, even though it was totally unimplementable. Um, and, you know, there was, there was just no way that it was ever going to work in the South African context. So we can destroy education with the best of intentions. And, and as long as we safeguard when we talk about the high-tech solutions and we're aware of how implementable they are, and we're not just going to, you know, replicate the same problems, then, yes, I'm, I'm all for it. Hmm. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree. I mean, there's no easy solutions to that. But as we were saying earlier, I'm a firm believer that if you can read and read well, you can learn anything. I mean, if, if, even if we just fix that, I mean, I've, I've seen the statistics on how many 12-year-olds in South Africa can't even write their own name. I mean, if you can't do that, you're never going to be able to learn anything. But if you can read, you can literally teach yourself anything from an actual skills-based perspective. However, you might require then expensive education if you want to be part of the body of creating new knowledge, which is another thing we need to sort of separate, particularly at the tertiary level. There's two streams of people going into tertiary education. One are going to become academics, and they're a very, very small bunch. These are the people that are going to contribute to the general body of human knowledge. And it's not for everyone. It's not even something many people want to do, but some people do. This is why we have stuff and, and innovation and R&D and that sort of thing. But the vast majority of very smart, very articulate young people who are going to university or to tertiary education are doing it to get a job. They're going for skills training. And there's probably quite a good argument to be made there to separate those two streams into having corporates pay for training their own future workforce, like is what's happening with the We Think Code models and the Lambda School models. There's so many examples we can pull into there for people that are going to go work for a business. And this is not just for sort of low-skilled people. This is for high-skilled, your MBA students too. Why aren't companies paying to train their own particular workforces. Google, Facebook, they're all looking into this right now. It's not a crazy idea. It's quite an easy way to remove that burden in a win-win situation because corporates also can't find skilled workers in South Africa, which is hugely ironic given our massive unemployment. On the other hand, then it makes a lot more sense to focus state-based funding in research and development into the knowledge side of tertiary education. That can be done a lot better, creating that sort of like Ivy League that you're kind of talking about there. So there's an opportunity to sort of separate there too. That still doesn't solve the problem of our fees must fall graduates on the ground right now. And I have kept you quite long this evening, but if you were able to say something to the leaders of the fees must fall movement who are on the streets right now today in South Africa, what is the best wisdom that you can give them? I mean, you're obviously a hugely empathetic person and you understand a lot of their problems, but we've also articulated a lot of the, the reasons why a lot of their expectations are simply not going to happen for their generation. How would you address them if you were given a megaphone and got to go down on the ground in front of them today? Oh, I, I, it, it's not my struggle, and I would never presume to do that. Um, but I, what, I suppose what I would say is that, you know, closing, first of all, don't play politics. Um, that the, the political game, you, you just turn yourself into pawns for somebody else's bigger project. And, uh, and it's very worrying. Uh, what is how that is playing out at the moment with this particular round? Um, it, it took a while to seep in in the previous fees must fall, which was very very clearly um, and apolitical, and and um, there are very worrying political machinations and local elections coming up, uh, which I think are playing a role uh, in in the current round. Um, so that that would be the first thing I would say, and the second thing I would say is you know do the homework. 
get it together and start looking at the funding and look at all the options that are open there and be realistic and make it an incredible research project and put together a policy paper, a solid documented one, costed, worked out, do all the literature, do the research and go and come with such practical and, 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 and uh, 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 proposals that they are going to be very difficult for government to say, no, that won't work because you're going to prove your case and you're going to show them how we can do it and how we can, how's the best way that we can do it. And that's just part of, you know, how, how a democracy should work anyway, is that, you know, the old, the principle that the Ubuntu is basically the law of the constitution, you know, nothing with, you know, nothing about us without us and that we need to be consulted at every step and especially with any policy or, or, or major legislative decision that is made that is going to affect our lives. And so the students need to step up to the plate and they need to brief the parliamentary com committees. They need to take it to, to, to the ministers. Um, and that's, that's what I would do is I would, I would, I would create think tanks and I would, and I would enlist the help of, 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 of the VC. I wouldn't be throwing water bottles at him. I would say, yeah, explain to us how, how this whole system works and your problems uh, that you're having. Because the VCs all over the country, we've been shouting about the fact that the fees were too high for students and that it was going to come to a crunch. And they've been doing that for, for, for a decade and they were ignored. So, you know, to some extent, the VCs are on, they're on the side of the, of, of the students, but there becomes this kind of fixation um, on these figures. Uh, and, and then, you know, burning libraries, all these things, none of this is going to help. Uh, it, it's not going to help you. Um, so that, that, would be my, that would be my pep talk is, you know, put together the case and, and make it such a good convincing one that government has to move in the direction. And, 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 and take off the ideological blinkers as well, because I don't think the, the problem is not going to be solved this way um, at the moment. It, it's going to be a, a systematic approach and it's going to require everything from, from, from loans uh, to outright fees. Um, there's no reason why the rich shouldn't pay. Why should the rich now get free education? You know, uh, just more inequality. Um, and, and, and how are you going to help the missing middle? And, you know, what are you going to do? And there, and there, are, there are a million, there are lots of good ideas out there. And there are lots of examples in the rest of the world. Um, and a good examples uh, that we could, we could learn something from. And lots of bad examples, like the United States of America. Perfectly bad example of how to fund tertiary education badly and create these huge student, unmanageable student debts where people go into life starting with $100,000 uh, or two hundred thousand dollars that they owe, you know. So let's, you know, let's look at all those. And there are lots of other proposals in terms of funding. And so start with the start with the with the kids now. You know, is there not, you know, one percent of the salary that needs to be put aside from now for for the future? So you know, there's all kinds of all kinds of systems. Uh, um, and then you know, I quite like the idea of community service as well. Uh, you know, that once like you're a doctor or a teacher. Um, or you're qualified as an engineer or in any of these critical professions for the health of the country and to, to, to make progress, uh, that you have to work at a very low salary for the state for a number of years straight afterwards. Uh, <laughs> um, so except I, I except when the, the community service pay is, is greater than what you could earn in the private sector, which happens with a fair amount of those examples you just listed. So I do, I, I can't help my eyebrow from, from raising somewhat when you bring up that point in principle, again, sounds great. <laughs> well, I didn't say that, I did not say that you'd go out of university graduate as, a, as an engineer to work for the state at a high salary comparable to other people that are working as municipal engineers or whatever. That, that's not what I said. I said you'd go into a job at a low wage for the state. Yeah, and I, I, know, I know what you said, but in reality, you know, like in, in many professions that do have community service, that starting wage might be higher in the, in the, public, in the public sector than it is in the private sector, which kind of is the opposite of being community service, then it becomes literally a, a gravy train. You know, like you're not actually giving anything back if, you, <laughs> if you're getting more than you would on your own, which is, I know that's perhaps an unfair point, but this comes back to the conversation around how incentives are everything and how it's the execution and, the, and you have to have trust in these systems. You have to manage them to actually get them to work 
properly. But your, your general advice there is saying to people, if you don't like it, you need to do something about it because otherwise this train just carries on rolling and the same gravy keeps on getting poured over the same dinners. It's not going to get resolved unless ordinary citizens and ordinary consumers actually become proactive about hacking this democracy, to put it, to put it very bluntly. Yeah, well, that, that's a, that's a good way of putting it, and you know, and and, and that's a, 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 a kind of project that a, that students could learn more from because it's a practical, real thing applied to their lives, applying actual theory to policy and to their lives, and finding out how all these systems and everything works. I mean, that's you know, I think that that's uh, that, that would be anyway. That, that's what I think they should do. You know, make the case. Um, the, the case is not made through through closing down the university. In fact. You know, as, as, as a working class boy at university doing apartheid, you know, I, I admit that I was very careful of getting involved uh, in the struggle initially um, because I, my pri I was the first person in my family to go to university and my, my absolute concern was to get my degree so that I could then help my parents and that I could then help uh, my family. Um, and I'm sure that there are many students at the universities in exactly the same situation that I was in, uh, who are being stopped from getting the education, might be missing their chance, um, stopped on two fronts, one struggling with the fees, that's true, but even if they've, if they've got the funding and they got the misfess and they want to learn, being prevented to do that. Um, so the, yeah, so that's, that's also a consideration. Very good point. I don't have any more questions for you for today. But thank you again for coming on the small print and you want to show your book again, Rattling the Cage. Hopefully we've rattled some people's feathers today. We have, we have at least covered a few dangerous ideas. We could have been a lot tamer, <laughs> but I definitely recommend that you, that you give it a read. Don't necessarily have to agree with it. I certainly didn't agree with everything in it, but I think it raises all the right questions and it opens all the right conversations. Because as we've been saying today, if we don't get involved in fixing this as citizens of Spaceship Earth, then this is not going to get fixed. It's only going to carry on on the path that we've set it on because people will follow the incentives that have been laid out in front of them. But Brent, do you have anything else you want to close off with today? I, I just want to thank you very much for the time. Thank you. Thanks, Brennan.